Hello and welcome to Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham. My name is Lewis Garnham. I'm I'm the person who is speaking and the person whose name I just said, which is kind of weird, but whatever. It's just me. And this is my podcast um, where each week I speak to smart people and try to learn more about the world. I'm very excited about this episode. It's the second episode and this week my guest was Patricia Cornelius. I sat down with her a few days ago and chatted about a lot of stuff. Patricia is a playwright, a novelist, a film writer and she's a a really amazing artist. She writes really interesting works um, and she's been in the industry for many, many years. She's written 30 or 40 plays I've seen probably, I think, maybe seven or eight of her plays. And uh, I think that all of her plays that I've seen, I was trying to think about what I wanted to say about her in this introduction. And I think that one thing that sticks out for me is that I have never seen a Patricia Cornelius play that I haven't thought about for weeks following it or months or years. Lots of her plays, they just keep coming back into my brain and yeah, none of them have ever really left me. Uh, and I think that's a really good mark of something special when it when it sticks around in your brain like that. And I know that Patricia doesn't want to make art that's just entertaining. She, she rejects that idea. She wants to make things that are thought-provoking and important. I don't know if she would use the word important, but I think her work is really important. She writes a lot about class, about sex, about sexism, about race um, and identity. And she often writes from the perspective of marginalized people. And she, she often writes about things that might be handled with a bit more trepidation from other artists or avoided altogether. I feel like she delves into places that other people might be afraid to delve into, which is such a great thing. Um, She's won a million awards in theatre. I'm not going to list them all here. It'd take all day. Uh, And yeah, she's she's a really great artist. We we spoke about COVID inequality in, in the COVID crisis and inequality that will follow it um julian assange sexism in australia australian identity racism and lots of other stuff we chatted for about an hour and i think you're really going to enjoy this chat so i don't want to beat around the bush too much longer i just want to get straight into this podcast i really enjoyed talking to patricia and i think you're gonna just have an hour of sitting back and being inspired by her because I think she is quite inspiring. She's very smart and very passionate and you can hear the passion in her voice in this podcast, which is a great thing. The music for this podcast is done by a band called Silt. I've stolen uh, a bit from one of their songs called Humidity, which is a great song. They're a great Melbourne band. You should check them out. Also, at the end of this podcast, I ask Patricia for her recommendations of some artists that people should check out. And I think I'm going to do that with every guest going forward at the end of the podcast. I'll just ask them for a recommendation of someone in the arts that they think is worthwhile for people to see. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to any First Nations people who might be listening to this podcast and recognize that sovereignty was never ceded in Australia. Um, This podcast was recorded on Zoom, so there's a little bit of glitchiness in it. I apologize for that. Once lockdown restrictions are eased in Melbourne, I'll be able to have more face-to-face conversations, which will be really fun. I'm looking forward to that. Um, And yeah, I'm just going to get straight into it now. This is episode two of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham and this week's guest, the formidable, fantastic, inspiring Patricia Cornelius. I want to talk about COVID first. How are you going with the whole COVID thing? And are you staying sane? And how are you staying sane? And are you working through this time at all? 
I'd just like to say the days are long. Um, I think because I'm living on my own, they're really long. And uh, and even though fundamentally it hasn't shifted for me because when I, I do work at home and I work uh, many hours at home, but because I'm part of the theatre world, I'm engaged in a lot of um, either rehearsal or talking about plays that will go on or uh, some kind of discussion about the work. And um, so that's usually out and about and with people, many boys. I miss them dearly. It's sort of um, hard to kind of do the whole Zoom thing constantly. Yeah, it's but not the same. Working, I've, just re- I've just delivered a play that I've been almost three years late with. I had no excuse in COVID. It's really <laughs> the shit. And so I had to, yes, yeah, so I can do it. And I was nervous that maybe I couldn't write another play. And it, because it's quite distracting, COVID, in terms of how the fuck are you going to write about something that has any, any, is anywhere near the profound effect that this um, virus is having on people's lives. But in the end, I kind of enjoyed what I was writing about and doing it. And I found, you know, it was a kind of quite a good distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's too all consuming, the COVID thing. It's like the only thing in my brain. And I'm sick of it. I'm so sick of yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's almost like you've, we've got it. <laughs> mm, yeah, I know, I know. We're sort of at, at the anticipation. I, sometimes I feel overdramatic and I think this is the end. We're fucked. And it might take some time, but we're all going to die out. And why wouldn't we? Because we're so appalling and what COVID has totally revealed is stuff that we've known but now it's so out there and overt. About About inequality or about um what do you mean? About inequality about oh guess what there's a we've got a whole lot of homeless people where to take uh, refuge oh guess what people being women are being that had the shit beaten them out of them and no surprise there because they're stuck at home with monsters. And on and on the reveal, Black Lives Matters, you know, the kind of the racial tension and the, the lies in this country. Why are our, our, our Indigenous people so vulnerable? One, because we've allowed that to happen. You know, so on and on, mm-hmm. it just goes on. Yeah, and the same all over the world. And Centrelink is a nightmare to operate and to use, which I feel like a lot of uh, middle-class people who have lost their jobs through COVID have realized, fuck, Centrelink is really hard to, you know, there's so much bureaucracy in getting your payments set up and there's so much stuffing around. And then when you do get it, it's, it's, it's not that much money, even though it's more than what people usually get, a lot more than what they usually get on Newstart. But Centrelink's always been really hard to deal with for people who have relied on it. But now everyone's realising especially, that. Especially also, it always has been for people who, whose uh, English is the second language like, or, it, mm. or third language. You, know, you just um, up against, yeah, bureaucratic nonsense. And it's yeah. all about yeah. the money that you have a right to. Yeah, yeah. Do, um, what do you... I want to know what you think like the ramifications of the COVID thing will be. So let's imagine in a year or two, it's all done. Say if that means there's a vaccine or, or it's just like the, yeah, the the crisis is over. Do you think there'll be things about the world that will change forever um, in terms of inequality and stuff? And do you think that it'll be better in general, a better world that will come out of COVID or a worse world? Oh, You'd hope that um, it would be a better world. In, you know, that one would have we, that we have to we have to address climate. We have to address the inequities. You'd think that, but uh, we are so kind of capitalism is so entrenched, and the, those who have will sit pretty and greedy and hold on. And so you, I, I can't see it being fundamentally shifted unless. It's some you know, really huge move against those who control the power. And 
I, I don't know what, what that looks like anymore. You know, the, the old idea of revolution or the idea of revolution. I don't know what, what, what form that would take now. Do you but, think it's, is it harder to achieve revolution now because the world is like this big connected global thing as opposed to, you know, as opposed to a while ago when it was like, is it almost like it's gotten too big and, um, you know, corporations are too big and too far reaching. And is that what you mean by like how it, it wouldn't look the same now? Or I guess I think like even, even our means to connect with one another, apart from um, the internet, that, you know, that journalism has been so under attack and <clears throat> been, um, sullied if you like the fact that we do nothing to help someone like Assange who whose only crime was to publish something that the world needed to see to reveal truths about the underbelly of the world mm. and that we um so the connection with how how you kind of interconnect with people in a meaningful way and that would draw us onto the streets I'm, I'm not sure you can't see that that like that connectedness and the humanity. Let's hold, with Assange um, and all the whistleblowers. Um, I know you have like a huge amount of respect for those people, and so do I. Why do you think? The, I guess the state and America and Australia and the powers that be. How are they? Why are they able to make these people villains so easily? I think that the powers to be have amazing. Uh, procedures at their fingertips to be able to sully um, people. So the whole thing about his sexual life and the rape accusations, even though there was there were never even any charges, somehow that escapes in the kind of um, the, you know, the propaganda against him. So they're they're so well equipped with, and they have everything at their fingertips to be able to kind of contaminate. Um, anybody, so it's a bit like the old the old days when the, in the left, and if there was somebody that was causing tr- trouble and was actually uh, allowing people to kind of understand something about the me- the uh, machinations of politics, they would often be accused of some sort of sexual misdemeanor. And that put the nail on the head. That put an end to them. Yeah. And, yeah, as petty and silly as that seems, so in in some ways, I think that's what they've done with Assange. They've made him this weirdo. He belonged to some cult. He's blonds his hair, which he doesn't, and you know, it's all sort of um, a, a way of kind of making people feel uh, anxious about him. He's not a real journalist. He he's not a real publisher. Well, what the fuck is he then? Yeah. You know, like it, just um, ways of not and also in terms of Australia, him being Australian, we never we never throw our hat in for anyone. We turn our back on the most brilliant people. We we did it with um Birch in um uh, Vietnam. We've we've done it all all the time. That kind of an anxiety about supporting one of your own, you turn your back on them. What you don't yeah. go to bat for him. You leave Hicks to way too long and marmled in, in, a, in a Guantanamo when the British got their people out immediately. But mm-hmm. toe the line. Adam so Goods to a, to a, like a different extent, oh, but similar sort yeah, of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not able, not able to go into bat. Indigenous not going into bat for that's even... We never have. We don't even, you know, there's a pretense that they don't exist still. Yeah. I also talk more about theatre, you know, because that's what I know. What what do I think COVID's going to do in terms of theatre? Yeah. I think there's like, I was sort of trying to think about you, you, you as a stand up, would you, you, it's not dissimilar. It's because what, what we rely on in the theatre and stand up in those sort of performative, um, unlike film, is that we really rely on the immediacy of the inter- an interaction between audience and um, performer. And what what you hope for with theatre is that there's 
a basic understanding of the work and the way that it's going to be expressed. But even still, you know that each night will surprise you with something mm. and that actors pick up on something serendipitously or whatever, um, that there's a different vibe in an audience. And that, that interaction is quite subtle at times or quite overt um, and you kind of know that it's about the flesh and blood and the, the, the uh, sweat on the face, the, the spit in the mouth, whatever, uh, as gross as that might seem, especially nowadays, is that very thing about the visceral nature of, of those performative, um, that performative work is, is really so under threat. And it's, so it's not just about being placing an audience at disparate um, you know, at, at uh, arm's length away from one another. It's about how how they react with the flesh and blood of a, of performance in their space. And so, you, you, the intimacy of of future works, you can say goodbye to that. That the the actors will be even more distanced from an audience, and um, there certainly won't be clamouring for great seats close to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it, it it's just a I can't see how theatre is going to struggle for such a long time. Yeah, yeah, I think stand up as well. It's it's mm. it's scary. Um, on theatre, just quickly, I want to know a little bit about. I think recently there was um, funding was was cut to a bunch of like smaller theatre companies. Is that right? Do you know anything about that? Like maybe La Mama yeah. and stuff. Yeah, Can so, you talk to me yeah. about that at all? And and in in terms of what that would mean for you as a playwright, and especially like if you were a younger playwright and your career wasn't as um, far along as it was, would that is is that a worry for younger people working in theatre that um the smaller companies have had some money cut from them? I mean, this is really you. Know, that's the other thing about COVID. The, the, those cuts do not surprise us because you, the thing about the arts, why it's re, even more reeling more than it is usually, is not because of COVID. It's because it's been so fucking underfunded and uncared for and unsupported for so long, despite the fact that it brings in money to the, the country. And, and so, despite the fact that, it, that there's, it's vibrant, it's mostly rested on, on the fact that people who do it for really poor wages or no wages um, have just invested their lives into kind of making the work without proper funding. And that funding has got more and more diminished. And what's happened for a long time now, the smaller and middle range companies have disappeared. So the reliance on for people like me, um, playwrights, whether we're young or old, are on the companies, big established companies wanting new work. One, they don't barely do Australian work. Two, they are certainly not going to do works that are not that are kind of progressive and out there, or are experimental in form, or very political in nature. They turn away from those works. They won't even let the, you in the door. See, I can't remember what number I'm up to. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We have numbers to sort of outline that. We're already were in a dire position, really dire, and so that that's what, and I think that's what's the case for um, for so many so many industries and so many of us in in various work. It, it was already shit, it was so shit, and so it just couldn't. We can't re, um, take another attack, and this COVID one is so savage that it has really put us on the way in the back foot. But for young playwrights, it, it is pretty devastating. And so even, also for old playwrights, so yeah. I had on with Malthouse and um, they, they are not going to honour that play. That, that play won't go on because it can't. But a lot of companies have honoured their programs for the next year, either next year or hopefully the year after even. Um, uh, whereas Malthouse didn't do that with mine and quite a number of plays that they programmed. So you sort of go, 
oh, I see that it just stops. It just, yeah. just um, you, you make that dec- decision. There's no real debate about it. Let me and a cast and a, and a crew and a director flailing because the, there's so much investment already in it. And um, so it feels kind of miserable that, that uh, the arts, the, the way that things will be chosen is so up for grabs because it, we don't have the power as artists. We, we are dependent on those who run the companies and program. With that, like not having the power and being dependent on the people that run the programs, I feel like your work has never, like you were saying, um, you know, it's, it's, it's harder or it's less likely for the bigger companies to take on work that is political or, you know, has sort of searing commentary or whatever it might be. I would say a thing about your work is that you never have, have pandered to any sort of, to anything really. Like I feel like you've always just said exactly what you wanted to say, even if that meant that, you know, that, that bigger companies wouldn't pick up your work. But has that always been a thing that's been important to you since you started in the arts? Were you always, like from the start, did you think to yourself, I really want to make work that is this way? And, and Or was that something that grew over time? I sort of never, I didn't plan to be at the company so that I yeah. didn't get <laughs> my work up. But I sort of felt like I had to write what I wanted to write. I never felt, I, I do know, um, playwrights and people who talk about writing to fit, fit a company or writing for a particular company because they know that that's what they'd like. But I just had, don't have the headspace for it. I, don't, I wouldn't know how to do it. So I, um, and sometimes I thought like with some, a play like Do Not Go Gentle, I thought, oh, fuck, I, I feel really um, like I've created something that I, I really what was quite beautiful, I still think it's quite beautiful and quite poignant about ageing and has a beautiful metaphor that, that it fit and felt very pleased with myself and with it. But I also thought the mainstream are going to eat this up. Eat yeah, up. yeah, That's totally. Because it's, not as, because it's not as political, did you think that or what? No, I just, I just thought I was sneakier with the right. politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was sort of quite, quite a seduction in it. Mm-hmm. That I still think that that that's not, not whether you're aiming for mainstream productions or not. One has to be very seductive with their politics. Nobody likes to be hammered with, uh, you know, you should, you should, or didactic nonsense. It drives people crazy and drives you, you me crazy if I see it. Who mm-hmm. who wants something thrust down your throat? Like you just you kind of, you want things to be uh, addressed in the most uh, fluid and surprising ways that kind of open your brain to things. And I thought that play did that gorgeously, but they, they don't want it. And do you think a lot of people would have gone to that play thinking that it was just a play about Scott's journey through through the Arctic or whatever, and then slowly realized the metaphors and the intricacies of it or like is that something like do you know what i mean do people do people go into plays like that and then are they surprised by the metaphors or do you think they came knowing what it was about more i think that's how metaphor can work you very beautifully is that you sort of going what's going on Mm. you think you're in some world and then the reveal is, if, if it's handled well in production, the reveal is delicious. It's, mm-hmm. And you go, oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, I have no idea how many actual playwrights, not how many, but a couple of playwrights who said to me, who gave me some advice and said, do you know, you could set that in a nursing home. <laughs> and I, oh, my God. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, I spend that defeats six the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That I'm not going to have a, you know, an audience never turning up when they hear it's in a nursing home. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and lack of interest. And to, <laughs> to kind of go, no, this yeah. is a journey of their lives, like it was Scott's last mm. trek. 
and the, the last leg of your journey. And then that analogy is, there's something sweet in that. I love that analogy. I feel like um, I can't, I, I was quite young when I saw this play, but um, the call, I don't know if there was a metaphor throughout that, but I feel like that, that I think that was a play about Hicks, um, but I don't think it was ever clear that it was about him or maybe it just wasn't to me because I was younger and I, I, I wasn't up to date on the was, news and stuff. But was that like a, another one where it was sort of subtle throughout? Well, it wasn't. It was definitely about a young Australian man who hears the call, was looking for some call for to make life meaningful, to make uh, something better out of the, the mundanity of shit past life. At times, you're working really shit hard jobs that give no kind of um, nurture or no nothing much. You except you know if you're lucky a good pay packet or a fair pay packet, but nothing else. So in it, he certainly his name's Gary. It wasn't kind of, but it was d- definitely inspired by the Hicks mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. The fact that well, also on the information that that when when they heard um, to get out of Afghanistan and get out quickly um, after the towers. Uh, went down it wasn't just David Hicks that got caught, but there were two hundred young men, Australian men, who got out. Wow! And there's all these people, and part of them, you know, some of them are mercenaries working and um, fighting for somebody else and being paid or getting some sort of payment. But a lot of them are kind of just looking for. Something else. Something, yeah, yeah. I was sort of interested in what that call is, and it, it's different for a lot of people, the different calls, some people spiritual, some, you know, whatever. But, yeah. That's interesting, the looking for something else, because I feel like um, all your plays have characters who are looking for something else, or most of your plays have characters who are looking for something else. What about, I, I, I want to ask you about Anthem, which came out, it premiered, I think, last year or the year before. Last which, year. Last year, which you wrote with Christos Sulkus and Melissa Reeves and Andrew Bavell. Was there anyone else? And Irene, Irene Bella. That's right. And that team, you also wrote Who's Afraid of the Working Class much earlier. Are they, are they, are those two plays, I never saw Who's Afraid of the Working Class, but are they sort of like two sides of the same coin? Are they, is Anthem supposed to be a follow on but set in a modern era? Is, is that right? Or are they just completely separate works? They are, they are separate works, but they, they were, they were, they were commissioned that, that work, Anthem was commissioned really on the back of um, Who's Afraid, even though that was written a long time ago. So Dan Clark, who worked at the um, Arts Centre, he just really devoted his time in making that happen and uh, investing in an idea of what, what we would write about now and what was important to us now. And so, um, yeah, they're totally connected, but they have a really different feel and, a, a, and the, some of the concerns remain. Money, race in this country, the those important things of class. So de- definitely there's interrelationships between the two, but very distinct works. And do you, in, in terms of, because, yeah, I feel like I, not having seen Who's Afraid of the Working Class, but Anthem is, you know, a, a bunch of people who, like I, I see as being fucked over by capitalism in, in very different ways. Do you think it's the, the situation for marginalised people in Melbourne is worse today than it was when when you wrote Who's Afraid of the Working Class? It's probably just different different variety of shit. The, the, the fact that we kind of avoid avoid seeing ourselves as a, a society that's based on class is still shitful. You know, the like class is in, in terms of theatre, class has been ignored and avoided for a, a long time. And you know, certain other things get get a um, a Guernsey like sure race and and um, sure gender and transgender that all those things that are are kind of fluid and need to be um, addressed and looked at again, but class is sort of totally out of fashion 
Do you think mm. that's because um, with all the other ones, it's sort of easy for, for theatre goers and, and theatre people and just people in general to say, you know, I, I support anti-racism or I support transgender people and I stand with them. But with class, it's a bit, it's a bit more awkward because some people have money and some people don't. And the people that have money maybe don't want to give up their money. So they find it awkward to be like, they'd rather just not look at the fact that class exists. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, that it's more about who controls um, what's seen again. So the mainstream that that might be a concern for the mainstream who, who pays for those theatre tickets and they're expensive are mostly people with money. But at the same time, I think you can't underestimate that people with the money can take it on the chin a bit and are not necessarily, because they're, they're sitting pretty anyway, so they don't mind a bit of Ken Loach or, you know, oh, them poor bugger workers, you know. But... Um, I think it's just about the ferocity of some work. So there's plenty of working-class works that are seeped in a sentimental notion of what the working class is. So people have great appetite for them, or they don't just go, oh, yeah, that's one mm-hmm. of them sort of things. Yeah. Everybody, in the end, you get out your fiddle and you have a jig and your job, your home, your income <laughs> And all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's a kind of old style notion of what working class um, art or theatre is. But I think when you get works that are fueled by a fury, they frighten people. And the fury is um, you know, at looking at characters who have pissed off with what they they have missed out on and. I guess you're right about the theme of mine. Often you, you, they don't even know what it is they've missed out on, that, yeah. that it's something that's been fucking stolen from you. Something mm. has been um, taken from you and you don't even have access to what it is, but you kind of know it. You know mm. it. You know that there's something different about what you your life is and what her or his life is. And see, that stuff is um, you're quite compelling. But theatrically, like, no, it's not re- revolutionary theatre. It's just going to open up stuff. And that's exciting. Mostly people really want that. And, and people who go to the theatre, no matter what class you are, they want to be enlivened and contested because that's essentially what theatre is about. It's dramatic. And, you know, it should be dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a lot of theatre is not dramatic <laughs> at all. But, yeah. 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 <laughs> a funny little absence of something fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. The conflict. There's no conflict. Yeah, it's and then it's then it's boring. What about, let's talk about, I reckon these two are kind of similar in themes, Savages and In the Club. I feel like that there, there was a reason for Savages being written and stuff that was going on in the world. And, um, yeah, can you just talk about, like, the motivation for writing that play and what that play is about a little bit, if that's all right? Mm-hmm. I, I, that play came from... Um, hearing about the Diane Brimble case, which was a woman who died on a P&O cruise, basically who was murdered, who was um, fed an overdose of a particular drug that's really dangerous to, to judge in quantity. And, um, and there were eight men involved in, in um, sort of incredible rape and sexual misconduct and, and abuse of her. And it was a, a case that sort of got under the psyche of a lot of Australians. Um, she's an Australian woman. And her, her ex-husband, uh, I think, led a really a pretty vibrant campaign to look at how that were, it was totally covered up and mm. how other cases on those cruises are covered up. But it was just a really so brutal. So the more you learnt about these group of men 
um, on this guy, the trip of a lifetime. Everybody's going on the trip of a lifetime and invests so much pleasure and excitement in it and, and what that trip of a lifetime is meant to bring you. And in the, on the very first night, this is what she endures and dies. So I sort of wanted to go, I'm going to have a look at these blokes. I didn't want to do a reenactment. Um, somebody wrote a play really quickly, apparently, in Queensland that hurt her family. And I'd read about that and I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do then? And they kind of did a really tacky, realist sort of take on it, a retelling in a really tacky way, what for? Um, and so I just thought, no, I'm just going to look at the four blokes on a trip of a lifetime and what they, the baggage they carry with them and what they invest in when they're on that trip and how dangerous um, they uh, possibly they are. So just have a look at good old Aussie masculinity, which is, you know, something pretty tough to take on here because it's pretty, got a pretty shit reputation <laughs> and, um, it, it's quite complicated, but it wasn't meant to be, I wanted to be, try to do a serious look at what it is about male behaviour, what it is, what is this baggage, unpack it. And um, it was, yeah, a tough play. It's, yeah. it's, it's scary. It's scary how normal those men seem throughout the play. And you sort of, you sort of can feel that something that they're going to do something really horrible, but throughout, they never seem like to me anyway, they never seem like evil rapists. They seem quite normal. They seem sexist, but they seem like blokes, like normal yeah. blokes. And I, I find really um, interesting there's a part in it where they're where they're talking about women in sort of like a really vile way and they're they're talking about who's ugly and who's who they could fuck and who they couldn't and then it it really like it seamlessly shifts from them talking about that to then talking about how much they love women and then how much they love their mothers and then and then they all they all sort of have a different take on their relationship with their mothers and some of their relationships with their mothers are a bit like fraught or whatever, but all of them are sort of saying, oh, they, they, we love our mothers, um, but in a weird kind of way. And then they shift back into the really gross, like talking about the women on the boat. And it's all, um, it's all so, it like flows constantly. And it's confusing, I think. And it's, and it's so spot on that like a lot of these men would, it's weird because they would love their mums or they'd love women that are in their life. You know, I feel like a lot of men always say, you know, I'd never do anything bad because I've got daughters and this and that. But then the misogyny is still there. Do you think that the misogyny in savages, do you think that that comes from the men in their personal lives and their relationships with women in their personal lives and just fucked up things in their own life? Or is it more of a society issue? And this thing about mateship and camaraderie and all this bullshit is more of a big society issue that can't be dealt with in certain, like case by case. It's more of a big, wide arching problem. I think it's a wide arching problem. I think it, it definitely is about how we perceive men in this country and how we allow a whole lot of shit in terms of masculinity. And that is absolutely not honest and based on a very weird perception of ourselves that's very untrue. See, and the thing that, it, the fact that we're a country where we have one of the highest levels of uh, domestic violence, like, whoa, that is astounding. And where does that come from? And how, how can that be? But so I said that again, you, you, one has to unpack all the, the various ways that we, it, we allow it to be and to kind of um, pull, it, pull it up really so, so young in primary school, in education, in, in, in um, ramifications. If you bash your bloody wife or your girlfriend or your ex-girlfriend or some woman who doesn't want you, then you will go down. 
knows question and that ra rather than you know very poor responses to it so then that and that that relates well to in the club because in the clubs um to do with footballers who are people who i guess usually don't go down for the stuff they do in some ways that play looked predictable before it was written do you know what i mean what of course what am i going to write about with this behavior and uh, the whole kind of um sexual bullshit with uh, football and women in australia it's pretty obvious um i had to kind of find a way in that was kind of um a bit more interesting or a, a, a more subtle, I suppose. And so to, I concentrated on three different women and also to give the women a voice, a big voice. So they're the biggest, baddest monologues that you've ever come across. Yeah. And, and women, or poor actor. For yeah. Women. At the same time, delicious because you don't get to have something quite so solid. But I was interested in somehow giving women control of that story totally and they they open with these these three huge monologues the the women in the play um is that do you do that technique a lot of like starting a play on a monologue or like on a big monologue is that like a way that you can get into work yeah i mean i immediately think of another play i wrote called big heart and she's got a an enormous monologue in the beginning. I mean, I'd hate to admit that that's what I do. Right. Well, you don't have <laughs> don't to. Don't worry about it. it. <laughs> yeah. No, I was actually, I was actually looking at some of your stuff earlier, and there, there's lots of plays where you don't do that. Like Savages, I'll for just, example, they just they're yeah, they're just yeah. talking to each other from the start. Yeah. They just. And even though I open like with ship uh, with a monologue. It's sort of a trick, really, because she is sort of just, it looks like she's raving at the audience. and yeah, 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 totally. Um, I want to know a little bit about, like, growing up and sort of what led you to writing and to also being so politically minded. I'll just ask that. Why do you think you're so politically minded? Why do you think you're so um, keen to write about injustices in the world? Have you always been like that since you were a kid? Oh, God, no. I think that you know, politics saved you and it saved me in, a, in my late 20s, really, because oh, feminism was probably my introduction to politics. I was quite confused about my, certainly my class politics and growing up because there, I grew up in a, with a very, in a very damaged um, situation because of a POW father and uh, and being too poor and in a quite uh, a snotty neighbourhood. And um, sort of the struggle of dealing with a man that's probably quite ill, actually, um, was was quite, uh, it, it certainly didn't politicise me. It made me um, go, uh, be quite, feel ashamed and uh, uh, uncertain about the world. And see, when, when I sort of, well, was introduced to feminism in the 70s and I just it was kind of lifesaver really making sense of myself in in the world and but when I was introduced to class politics that made even a greater sense of because of, of your childhood and being poor yeah yeah you, you like connected the dots kind of inequities uh, most people are I think growing up where where they experience the inequities, um, you know, met with a kind of shame or silence that you didn't hack it, you didn't, for whatever reason, your family or your parents weren't up to scratch and you needed to, um, you know, hang your head shut up and you're quite ignorant in lots of ways about having you ignorant to the that sort of political discourse, which is liberating. And... You, you you don't get you don't got access to it. Nobody's talking that talk. You not in your family. No one's um, you know they're talking crap about the stuff. They might be angry and uh, have got kind of um, good instincts, but they don't have any analysis in terms of marks or, or, or any of those things that save you and save you. So then, with 
education becoming like more privatized and more expensive and stuff like this. I just like that, that freaks me out what you're saying there about that, because then how do the, the people from poorer families get that education? Um, that liberation. That, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I admit it scares me too, because, uh, you, you know, what, what you do is dumb people down mm. and you down and for very good reason. So you don't give your your um, state schools and the money that they should have to, to for good education. It, it, you you have really unequal distribution of funds in terms of where what, what suburbs people live in, um, and you you um, that dumbing down is so dangerous for any society. Really, never going to liberate people from. The, a, a world where they feel caught and they they feel trapped it's um appalling and deliberate de- deliberate uh, deliberate dumbing down for the purpose of keeping people entrapped and in their places do you think is that is that yeah. what you think yeah yeah, yeah. i do yeah. well fuck that's yeah. damning um <laughs> I'm going to finish in a minute, but just quickly about human nature and the characters in your plays and knowing you as a person, I know that you you do talk to a lot of people on the street and, or you talk to strangers in the street or you strike up conversations with people, (laughs) you know, which is, that's true. You do do that. And I'm wondering whether that is consciously or unconsciously are you doing that to try and <laughs> to try and Luke. understand people yeah and then write about them or is that just a natural thing that you do and then your work i think yeah i think you're pay, painting a, a kind of too much of me <laughs> you know, chatting to the, to the um, no, never in a bad way like it's always it's always appreciated and it's always you know you have good interactions yeah. with people on the street or you know random people but you do do it you you're magnetized to you definitely that's a thing <laughs> I, would, sure. I would say i would be more a looter so I, I just overhear things by, you know, the engagement with people in the street. I don't have that much right. kind of thing. But I, I would, I'd pick up on people in, especially my tram over the years, but, but everywhere you pick up with people um, doing extraordinary things for just, just a moment. And it's, it's not kind of, you know, tame out there, isn't it? It's not contained. Well, not it's not tame out there, but it's contained, and and mostly you don't get to see people in their raw self that you you don't know. So just kind of reacting to the world, and that reaction into the world is so powerful, and and it's sort of that thing about you know, Patricia Cornelius. She writes, you know, she's fucking squeeze her fucking head off all throughout her fucking place. And I kind of do, but you know, that's I learnt that quite a long time ago. Is how even the vernacular or the vernacular in, is that for a lot of uh, people who do not have the power of language or the power of the, of uh, access to talking, uh, you use. Um, the vernacular in a really vibrant way and it's a discourse with the world where it shows I'm fucking angry and I feel like I've had something stolen from me and fuck you, I want it back. And there is something really exciting about that and to be able to capture that without dumbing them down because they're not, they're absolutely articulate in 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 a kind of absolutely extraordinary flowering and uh, and um you know, vulgar way I, lo- I love all that i don't necessarily kind of have any deep and meaningful no 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 but that yeah that, i think that explains it beautifully and then also like the beauty of the language and the, the swearing and all that stuff but then then throughout the play, you dig into why they're yelling and why they're, and it, you, you, you know, you sort of dig deeper. So if you, like, if I, I don't know how, to, but to relate this back to seeing people on your tram or whatever, 
would you see someone on your tram and then and then sort of reverse engineer it and think about what their life might be and then that could go into love or shit or something like that is that how you get inspiration no i might uh, you know more confess to just stealing it mm. that moment and placing it in my context or see or all of it is you know mostly if you if i put in pl- a play what the real world sometimes throws up. Nobody, nobody would believe it. Way more yeah. dream and over the top and yeah. bizarre. And see, in lots of ways, I'm trying to wrangle stuff to to find a a way in to seduce an audience. One to stay, and two to care about people that they have no relationship with whatsoever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. I, I love that. Um, are there any, an artist or someone, a creative that you can recommend to people? I think there's like, there's plenty of playwrights that are just fabulous, but I like to main, name three. Yes, and please. I'd love that. Jada Alberts is one who wrote, who wrote a play called Brothers Wreck. And she's also a performer. Beautiful. Um, and then, Melissa Reeves, whose guilelessness in her the work is so enchanting, and um, Angus Serini, who writes a language that is so delicious. Yeah, and yeah, great. That's perfect. Um, all right, to all those people, that's awesome. Thank you, Patricia. Thanks so much okay. for talking to me. I really nice appreciate to it. Talk to you, Lewis. Thank yeah. you. Bye. That was episode two of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Patricia Cornelius as this week's guest. Sorry about the glitchiness and the abruptness of the ending and and the glitches throughout it. It is a little bit difficult doing these conversations over Zoom. Um, You obviously, you lose a bit and every now and then the internet drops out and there can be just some annoying things like that that happen. Um, But I don't really think it matters because you heard most of what Patricia said and most of what I said, more importantly, what Patricia said. And yeah, I think how amazing is she? I mean, um, like I said at the start, it's it's so great having her on a podcast because the way in which she talks, I just listened back to an edit of the podcast then and it actually feels me like it makes me feel pumped up listening to her. Um, when she talks about inequality and injustice, it actually stirs something in me because she's so passionate and she expresses things in such a um such a like sort of poignant and full-on way she's not not afraid to just say it like it is um and that comes out in all her work as well so yeah once again i'd urge you to see patricia's work um i'm going to put some details about where you can find her online in the podcast description and also all the details of the artists that patricia recommended that'll all be in the description of the podcast as well also a little link to silt they're a great band um and yeah i think that's all i'd like to say to you now at this stage thank you for listening to episode two another great episode coming up next week um i'm really excited to talk to my guest for next week he's a very very clever man um so yeah that'll be fun until then have a good week i'll see you next wednesday (laughs) 